of Psalms, Psalms 90, Psalms 90, starting at verse 9. We have been doing a spiritual audit. We started last week. We will complete the spiritual audit today. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for each each day that you give us, for the time that you give us here on this earth to do your will, to grow into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, to share you with those around us who are lost and going to a Christless eternity. Lord, use us to your glory. We ask you to teach us by your spirit this morning. We ask that you apply to our hearts that which we need desperately in our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us and empowers us to live out your word. Thank you for your son, who died on Calvary's cross in our place, taking the penalty of our sin, that we might have the hope of eternal life, life with you abundantly here and now, and life with you throughout eternity, never needing to fear death again. Lord, guide us as we study your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been thinking about, last week and this week, we've been thinking about the frailty of life as well as the brevity of life. In Psalm 90, verse 9, we read, All of our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's what we're talking about these two weeks, last week and this week. God teaching us to have a heart of wisdom us understanding that our days are limited and we have no time to waste in the old life. We have no time to waste in the old life. It's interesting, in in at least two instances in the past several weeks, the world of sports has given us examples of the frailty and brevity of life. Maybe you were watching Monday Night Football this week. Anybody here watching this week? You remember what happened to DeMar Hamlin, 24 years old, made a tackle, got up from the ground, and immediately crumbled to the ground. His heart stopped. They rushed out. The medical team rushed out. Both teams surrounded him, prayed and cried. 24 years old at the peak of his physical 
powers and he's laying there fighting for his life. And it was interesting to me as I have watched the various coverage, Michelle Tofoya, who many of you may remember was a sideline reporter for one of the networks, she used this phrase, how fragile or the fragility of life. And I thought that's interesting how so many people across America are focused because of this incident and, and praise God he's doing well apparently, recovering in the hospital. But what an example to all of us how brief and fragile life is. And so on the cusp of 2023, I thought we should think about the brevity of life. I thought we should think about the frailty of life and think about what do we want to get out of life? What is it that God wants us to get out of life? How good are we tending our souls? The other example, <clears throat> excuse me, there was this second example that happened a few weeks ago. Mike Leach, you know who he is? The pirate, the pirate. Uh, college football coach, most recently of Mississippi State University, 61 years old had a heart attack, and didn't survive. Now, the reason that I mention him is that uh, Kathy and I, while we were not fans necessarily of the teams he coached, we were fans of his. Uh, he, if you knew anything about him or ever listened to him, he was a unique football coach. When they'd interview him, like between halves, or at the beginning or end of a game, it sounded like you were talking to a science professor, not a football coach. And uh, so he was an amazing person, and we were saddened to read of his death. But interestingly, Mississippi State University president, speaking about him, said this, Mike's death also underscores the fragility and uncertainty of our lives. I thought how interesting that in both instances, those who talked about these death and near-death experiences talked about how fragile life is and how brief life is. So that's our topic. That's what we're trying to talk about. We're trying to ask the question, how well are we tending our souls? How well are we t tending our souls? We're doing it in the context of a spiritual audit, a spiritual audit. We read in Psalm 90 of the brevity and fragility of life. And the reason Psalm 90 is so important to our study and our spiritual audit is this, as one writer in the Daily Walk Bible said, Verses 7-12 of Psalm 90 seem to indicate 
that Moses wrote Psalm 90 during the time of wilderness wandering, the 40-year period when 600,000 Israelite men and their wives died for unbelief. What clearer reminder of Israel's mortality could there be than an average of one funeral every 20 minutes, 24 hours a day for 40 years? They would have been a camp consumed by death. Think about this. One funeral every 20 minutes, 24 hours a day for 40 years. Psalm 90 isn't the only place that tells us to tend our soul or to think about how we use our days and think about what God desires to do in our lives in our days. Uh, We mentioned last week also Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire life is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. One writer said this, we tend to make a clear distinction between God's spiritual laws and the laws of nature. For example, the law of gravity prohibits us from jumping off a 10-story building. The reason is obvious. However, we don't believe that God's spiritual laws work the same way. Instead, we believe that somehow we can fly. You see, as we live our lives, we realize that there are physical laws that we are subject to. There are physical laws that our bodies are subject to. And if we violate those laws, such as stepping off a 10-story building, there is going to be quite a consequence to pay. And yet, a lot of times we don't think about God's spiritual laws. A lot of times we don't think about where do we, where do we stand How are we growing? How are we doing? How are we tending our souls? We don't think about that. We don't realize that to violate God's spiritual laws is as serious as to violate natural laws. There will be a consequence to pay. One writer said, Life moves so quickly that we forget to tend our souls. Take time to be alone and make yourself utterly available only to yourself and to God, connect with him, and in doing so, take care of your soul. So I mentioned to you last week as we started this study that a gentleman, a a businessman from Dallas who's in heaven today, used to write many years ago for Leadership Journal, and he wrote an article entitled uh, uh, How to Do a Spiritual Audit. That included 12 questions. And so we're using that, his work, as the framework of our study. And we started it last week. We looked at the first five questions. And my hope for this study is that each of us will think about these questions, write down. Maybe all 12 won't mean something to you or to me, but there may be one or two or four or five that we want to tend our souls with in the coming days of the new year. The five that we looked at last week, the five questions are this, am I content with who I am becoming? 
Am I content with who, am I, who I am becoming? The second question we looked at last week was, am I becoming less religious and more spiritual? That is, am I becoming more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees in my life? Am I becoming more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees in my life? <clears throat> the third question, does my family recognize the authenticity of my spirituality? It's in our homes that the authenticity of our spirituality, the authenticity of our relationship with God will be seen or not, or not seen. <clears throat> the fourth question, do I have a flow-through philosophy? Am I taking in all the wonderful things I'm learning, the Bible studies I'm going to, the podcasts I'm listening to? Am I taking all of that in and it's just making me larger and larger and larger because I'm not letting it flow through? I'm not letting it flow through to others. I'm not sharing with others that which God is teaching me. So the question is, do I have a flow-through philosophy? The fifth question that Fred Smith suggests is this. Do I have a quiet center to my life? Do I have a quiet center to my life? Well, that brings us to question six this morning, and we want to talk about questions six to 12 this morning. The sixth question is this, have I defined my unique ministry? Now by that, he means this, have I, do I know what I can do effectively? Do I know what I can do effectively? That's what he means when he says, have I defined my unique ministry? He said, the need is always bigger than any person can satisfy, and so my call is to simp simply to handle the part of the need that is mine to do. He said, in business, I subscribe to the wisdom, opportunity is never mandate. Opportunity is never mandate. Just because I had the opportunity to do something didn't mean I had to do it. So basically, he's saying, you and I need to look at ourselves, you and I need to look at our lives, look at the giftedness God has given us, look at the natural gifts that God has blessed us with. We need to look at those things and say, what is that which I am uniquely qualified for? What is that that I uniquely do effectively? Because there are many things that I can do. There are many things that you can do. There are many opportunities before us. There are many opportunities that other people would gladly enlist us for. But am I uniquely prepared? What do I do effectively? So he's asking us to look at our lives and ask, what is it that I do Effectively, What is it that I am effective at, that I am successful at? What is it that God gives me opportunity to do? Not every opportunity, but opportunities that I'm prepared for. Opportunities that he has prepared me for. He said, fortunately, he was able to define his unique ministry early in his life, so he had not gone through midlife change. When young, I sat on a tombstone and decided what I wanted on my tombstone was he stretched others, and I've never changed that. That guided his life. 
that guided his life. He said, defining our unique ministry is important because so many requests are made that take time and energy. Unless you know the things you can do uniquely well, you end up doing many mediocre things just to please others. So it's important for us to know, what, what, is my, what am I uniquely qualified for? What am I uniquely gifted for, both natural gifts and spiritual gifts? What is it that I my heart goes out to and I think that that is what I want. Those are the people I want to affect. Those are the that's the way I want to do it. That's the 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 unique preparation that God has made in my life. He's what he's done for every one of us is guided us through life and uniquely built us unlike anybody else. That's what's fantastic. You and I are different than everybody else. God has uniquely given us gifts. God has uniquely qualified us. So the question is, do I know what I can do effectively? Have I defined my unique ministry? <clears throat> the seventh question <clears throat> is this. Is my prayer life improving? Is my prayer life improving? Notice that he didn't say, am I spending more time in prayer? Do you, do you notice that? Because that's kind of how we always focus it. We say, well, how much time are you spending in prayer? Or I'm spending this much time in prayer. He's not asking, how much time are we spending in prayer? Are we spending more time in prayer? Now, obviously, nothing would be wrong with spending more time in prayer. But that's not what his question is. And that's not what the question is that he's suggesting to us. The question he's suggesting to us is, is our prayer life improving? Is our prayer life improving? He says this, I have been reading and rereading Oswald Chambers' little book, Prayer, the Holy Occupation. In this, he defines the essence of prayer as finding the mind of Christ. Finding the mind of Christ. In other words, the essence of prayer is not getting my way in heaven, but heaven getting its way with me. That's the heart of prayer. That's the essence of prayer. Not me getting my way with heaven, but heaven getting its way with me. That's what he means when he says, is my prayer life improving? He, he gives an illustration. He says, years ago when Tory Johnson was starting Youth for Christ, he invited me to his hotel room in Memphis for some conversation. At the close, he said, let's pray. Then he prayed as I had never heard anyone pray before. I was accustomed to formal prayer, but Tory started out, thank you, Lord. You know, we're just a couple of young men who've been chewing the rag together. He said, I opened one eye and looked around the room, for I was sure another presence was there. I didn't see anyone, but that prayer made an impression on me. Occasionally now I hear someone pray the prayer of reality. You, you know what he's talking about there, right? You know some prayer is so formal that uh, it's like, who, who's this person talking to? Instead of conversational and having a real conversation with God. And he said, a few of these prayers have been so earthy that I can't repeat them in print, yet I'm sure they reached the throne. 
He says, I do not know when I am fully a man of prayer, but I can perceive progress if I am making it. Progress, not perfection, is all I can hope for in my spiritual growth. And then he gives us, along with the question, is my prayer life improving? He gives us a test, and I like this. He says, one test of my prayer life is this. On my, do my decisions have prayer as an integral part, or do I make decisions out of my desires and then immerse them in the sanctimonious sauce I call prayer? I like that, right? Where do we start? Do we start our decisions with speaking to God first and ask, what is it that you want, God? What is your will for me? What direction do you want me to go? What is it that you would like me to do? Or do we start with, this is what I'd like to see, God, now do it in my life. This is what I want, God, now give it to me. He's saying our prayers... And our decisions should have prayer as an integral part. Remember, the essence of prayer is not getting my way in heaven, but getting heaven's way with me. The eighth question is this. Have I maintained a genuine awe of God? Have I maintained a genuine awe of God. I love what he says here. He says, I've never felt I could express my awe of the Almighty on a bumper sticker on my car. (laughs) Isn't that good? I've never thought I could express the awe of the Almighty on a bumper sticker on my car. He said... Thinking about the awe of God inspires worship. He talks about a friend who recently went out into the night on his ranch and he looked up at the stars with awe and he repeated with the cartoon character, Ziggy, go God, go. Isn't that great? Do you ever just look up at the sky? Not to see what forms the clouds are taking and what animals they look like. Oh, there's an elephant. There's a hippopotamus. There's a dolphin. Just to think about the vastness of our universe. The vastness of this universe and to think and and, and be in awe of the God who made it all. The God who made it all. He said it inspires worship. It's interesting, when we look at the things around us, we will either think about the awe of God in His hand, or we will think about our own hand. R.A. Torrey, great Dallas preacher, I believe he was at First Baptist Church in Dallas. He was visiting with one of the parishioners of his church, who owned a large ranch in Texas, and the owner of the ranch, this Christian man, took him out on a porch and said, look at everything in this direction. And he pointed north. He said, I own all of it. And then he pointed east. And he said, look at everything in that direction. I own all of it. 
Then he pointed south, and he said, look at everything in that direction. I own all of it. Then he pointed west and said, look at everything in that direction. I own all of it. And R.A. Torrey quietly said, how much do you own in that direction? How much do you own in that direction? Have I maintained, the question is, a genuine awe of God? He said once after speaking, he gives this illustration. In Anaheim, I was walking down the exit corridor of the convention center when I met Dr. Gerhard Dirks, the great German computer scientist. It had been years since we'd seen each other. So as we hugged, I asked him, Gerhard, what are you excited about? With moist eyes, he said, the awe of God. Fred, can you imagine a mind so great as to conceive the DNA? So the question is, is the awe of God growing within, a, within me? Am I blown away by the greatness of God, by the majesty of God, by the power of God? The ninth question is one that I have shared with you many, many times before because it's one of my favorite illustrations of all time. And I'm going to share it once more this morning. The question, the ninth question is this, is my humility genuine? Is my humility genuine? He said, to me, nothing is as arrogant as false humility. Once I was asked to speak to a group, and before I spoke, a talented young lady sang. I turned to her and quietly said, you have a lovely voice. You may remember the illustration. It shocked her. She wrapped her arms around her torso and bent all the way forward, saying in a hysterical voice, don't praise me, give God the glory. He said, I wanted to shake her of this false humility. So I said, he didn't do the singing, you did. And then I said, I didn't say it was divine. I say it was, I said it was lovely. Now, by the way, we always get the wrong impression of humility. Humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves. It's the freedom not to think of ourselves at all. Isn't that nice? Chris did some great teaching a couple of weeks ago about humility. You can go back and, and listen to it. It's online. But humility isn't thinking poorly of ourselves. Humility is the freedom not to have to think about ourselves at all. What a great freedom. What a great freedom. Pride walks into a room full of people and says, Here I am. Humility walks into a room full of people and says, there you are. 
There you are. Humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves. Humility is to acknowledge that what I have, I've received from God and he gets the glory. But that doesn't mean we can't say thank you. I appreciate that you enjoyed the song. Humility. Fred Smith said, how I would like to have spent time talking to her about accepting her gift, her strength with gratitude. Wouldn't it have been so releasing for her if she could have said, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoy my gift. I appreciate the opportunity of singing for God's glory. Then she would not have been denying her gift nor the compliment I gave her. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, or actually Paul asks us a question, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? In other words, all that we are, all that we have, all of our giftedness came from God. All of the material things that we are blessed with came from God. All of the things in our lives are a blessing from God. We can be thankful for those things. We can be thankful for those things. Humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves. It's the freedom to not think about ourselves at all. Well, number 10, the 10th question is my spiritual feeding the right diet for me? And I, I like that phrase, spiritual feeding. Don't you like that? Uh, I don't know why I'm a weird person. I mean, I don't know why I am a weird person. Um, but I don't like things, terms like quiet time. This is my quiet time with the Lord. It sounds so boring, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like, boy, the Lord is boring and I've got to spend this quiet time with him? And uh, He calls it his spiritual feeding time. I like that a whole lot better because it's the time when my spirit gets fed by the Word of God and my spirit gets fed by other men and women of God who have helped me to understand how to apply the Word of God into my life. It's my spiritual feeding time. If you use quiet time, don't get upset. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you use devotional time, that's okay. I just happen to like this. Is my spiritual feeding the right diet for me? He says this, I've stopped calling my spiritual reading time a devotion, but rather a feeding time, for it is when my soul gets fed it took me many years to finally come to what I believe to be a healthy menu uniquely fitted to my needs. We can't all wear the same glasses, nor can we take the same medicine, just so we have different personalities and character traits that need developing and need dwarfing, and that means we must find the spiritual feeding that is right for us. 
And he says, currently I'm reading from seven or so different sources. I shared with you that I love reading devotional books. I'm addicted to, de- I, I have to admit it. Hi, my name is Joe. I'm addicted to devotional books. Uh, I love doing my daily Bible reading. I enjoy doing that. Not every day. I've got to be honest with you. You know, there are some days it's boring. Some days I have to force myself to finish the reading. Gee, I didn't realize Joe was such a sinner. Sure, if you know me at all, you knew that. (laughs) I like doing my daily Bible readings. And I always, every year, start with a set of devotional books to go with my Bible reading. So I can learn from other saints who lived before me. Some who have been dead for hundreds of years. That's, so every year I ask, Lord, what's the, what, what is the program for me for this year? What is the spiritual reading that I need this year beside your word? So, is your spiritual feeding the right diet for you? I hope, I hope you even have some time with the Lord. I hope you do that. Is our spiritual reading, our spiritual feeding time, is it right for us? He said, I find I feed best on those things that have lasted and that have produced the people I admire the most. That's why I was mentioning last week, you know, we talk about being mentored, and and that's a great thing. But we can be mentored by a book. We can be mentored by someone who lived hundreds of years ago, or maybe 50. But we can be mentored by them because God, the Holy Spirit, has worked in their lives and taught them some things that you and I need. And we can do that as part of our spiritual feeding time. Question number 11 is this. Is obedience in small matters built into my reflexes? Is obedience in small matters built in my reflexes? You know, that's where the rubber meets the road, I think, is in the small things, in the little challenges, in the little decisions, the little things that come up every day. Most of us can handle the crises. But are we, every day, are we growing in obedience in the small things? He asked this question. I think it's a great question. And I think it goes along with the parable in Matthew chapter 20. He asked this question, do I try to bargain with God or rationalize with, with, with him? Obedience largely determines my relation with Christ following new birth. He says I am a friend if I obey him. Therefore, I must check my obedience. My good intentions count for little. Remember the story in the scripture of the two sons? 
Father sent him out into the field. One said, I'll go, but didn't go. The other said, I won't go, but did go. Which one was obedient? Our good intentions mean nothing. It's our obedience that counts. It's our obedience that counts. Matthew chapter 20 is, uh, contains the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Remember the owner of the vineyard went out early in the day about 6 a.m. and he found some people in the marketplace and he, he contracted with them to hire them because they wanted a contract. And he contracted for a denarius for the day. Remember that? And then he needed more workers. The owner needed more workers. So he went out several more times during the day to the marketplace. Only when he sent others into his field to work, they didn't contract for a price. They just let it up to him. Do you remember what happened at the end of the day? At five or six o'clock when he called the workers in to pay them, he purposely had the, his managers pay the workers who started early in the day at 6 a.m., and they got a denarius. And then he progressively called those who came later in the day and worked a lot less hours, and they were also given a denarius. Do you remember that? And the landowner answered their discontent by saying to them, why should you not like me being generous to others? After all, you got what we contracted for. I'm paraphrasing. You got what we contracted for. You know, you and I make deals with God. God, if, if you will only do this, I'll do this for you. Do you realize how much we lose when we do that? Because God is desirous of being more generous than you and I can imagine. God is desirous of being more generous than you and I can imagine. So why contract with him? Do I try to bargain with God or rationalize with him. Also, Smith asked, how do I handle disobediences? Do I give excuses or concessions? Do I foolishly either carry guilt or try to punish myself for what God alone can forgive and will forgive? Is obedience in small matters built into my reflexes. And the last question, question number 10, to ask ourselves in this spiritual audit at the cusp of 2023 is this, do I have joy? Do I have joy? He said, joy is promised to me, do I have it? If the relationship with Christ is right, I do. To me, joy is perfected in the full belief in the total sovereignty of God. And then he talks about how for a time he left his own church to attend another church that was uh, very, uh, had a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. And he said, I now totally believe that God doesn't need me. He loves me. And I don't work 
to, for him to earn his love. I work for him as a result of his love. He lets me work in order to mature me. That brings me joy. Does my joy extend into my suffering? My suffering is my maturation. Even my dry periods produce perseverance, which is pleasing to God. Therefore, I can be joyful in the adequacy of God. It's interesting. One writer pointed out that in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, Paul said, Paul desired that he might finish his course with joy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8, where he is talking about his soon coming execution, he says that I have finished my course with joy. As one writer said, not with money or earthly possessions, because he wrote from a dark dungeon needing his cloak and parchments, not with a host of friends, for all men forsook him, not with fame, for he died a martyr, but he finished with joy, anticipating a crown. He finished with joy, anticipating a crown. Twelve questions to ask ourselves. Am I content with who I am becoming? Am I becoming less religious and more spiritual? Does my family recognize the authenticity of my spirituality? Do I have a flow through philosophy? Do I have a quiet center to my life? Have I defined my unique ministry? Is my prayer life improving? Have I maintained a genuine awe of God? Is my humility genuine? Is my spiritual feeding the right diet for me? Is obedience in small matters built into my reflexes? Do I have joy? Now, we've been talking to those who know Christ as Savior, to those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we've been looking at a spiritual audit to see where we are at in our walk what we might want to pay attention to in the coming year. But you know, a spiritual audit begins with salvation. I'd like to share the testimony of Tom Landry. Most of you know the name Tom Landry, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He said, I had always considered myself a Christian, yet so much of what I now discovered in the Bible went against the grain of the life philosophy I had lived by. All my life I had made my football career the number one priority and let it dictate the direction of my life. Now here was the Bible saying I needed to make God and his will first and follow his direction for my life. Gradually I realized the crossroads I faced in my life was really a spiritual crossroads. I had to decide whether or not I believe what the Bible said. All my other questions hung on that one. The more of the Bible I read and studied, the more it all made sense. The more pieces of life, the, the more pieces of life fit together. The more I wanted to believe. And yet that analytical part of my nature kept asking questions, trying to dispel all doubt. 
I've known people like that. Have you known people like that? They tried to dispel every doubt. They wanted to go down every avenue except the avenue of faith. Landry says, one day I came across a short passage of a poem by Robert Browning that said, you call for faith, I give you doubt to prove that faith exists. The greater the doubt, the stronger the faith, I say, if faith overcomes doubt. When I read that, something clicked in me and I began to understand faith in a new light. I can't point to a specific moment or a specific time when I had a sudden born-again experience. For me, coming to my own personal faith in God took place over a period of months in 1959, but I finally reached a point where faith outweighed the doubts and I was willing to commit my entire life to God. I can't say that decision made an immediate visible difference in my life. I can't even say it instantly transformed me into a much better person. I had a lot yet to learn, and I still do, about how God wants me to live my life. But what my new Christian experience did do for me was to place football behind the priorities of my faith and my family and give me a sense of confidence and peace about the future, whatever it would be. Have you come to that place in your life when you have realized your need of Jesus Christ? Realized that he is God's only provision for sin and death and put your faith in him. Let's bow in prayer. Our Lord and our God, as we bow before you, our desire, Lord, our desire is to live every day of our lives of this short and brief and frail life, to live it wisely, to live it in light of your word, we have spent enough time in our lives, Lord, on the wrong path. Help us to examine our lives and see what course correction we need and take it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.